Howdy, this is Father Greg Gerhardt, Associate Pastor at St. Mary's Catholic Center. Thanks for tuning in to Aggie Catholic Talks Podcast. Today's episode is going to be the first lecture of the Catholicism 101 series that I'm offering on Thursdays at 7 p.m. The first part of the series is on the kerygma. That just means the first proclamation of the gospel. And in today's episode, I talk about God's love. God's love is unconditional, spousal, and personal. And I go through many passages from Scripture to show that beautiful proclamation of the good news that God loves us, that He gave His life to save us, and now He's living by our side every single day to enlighten, strengthen, and guide us. So thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoy it. If you want to see these talks live, just come to Catholicism 101 on Thursdays at 7 p.m. in the church. Thanks, God bless, and gigum. So I think this is everyone we can expect. Let's go ahead and begin in a prayer. In the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Gracious God, we give you praise and thanks for your goodness and love. Thank you for your mercies that are renewed to us every day. We pray that you open our hearts already, Lord. Let this not be just another lecture that anyone could go to. Let it be a time that draws us into deeper communion with you. You're the source of all truth, of all goodness, and you love us in an unconditional way, in a spousal way, and in a personal way. Open not only our minds, but our hearts to appreciate you uh, and to give ourselves to you in return. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Thanks for coming out. I'm really pumped to be able to talk to you all about the essentials of the faith. That's what we wanted to do. Um, We were looking um, at the past uh, year. One of the things we thought we could improve on in serving you is by giving a kind of essentials formation, an essentials curriculum. So whether you're in a home group, whether you're in John 15, whether you wanted to come to a lecture series, we wanted to be able to give you an essentials curriculum. Let this be the foundation on which everything else can be built. Our faith is one that we have just kind of an intuitive, an intuitive appreciation of, but we can grow in deeper understanding when we actually study it as well. So that's what we wanted to do at St. Mary's, and then this is a great night to start it off. So we're calling this lecture series Catholicism 101. That kind of gives it an academic feel, and you're already in academics a lot. You're, I mean, someone told me they went to four lectures already today. So why come to another lecture? Uh, Why take this time when you're already completely immersed in the academic life? (coughs) Unlike everything that you're doing, um, merely in in an academic way, studying the faith doesn't end in simply mastery of material, right? Studying the faith ends in a person. It ends in God, which is why it's so great for us to be here, because it ends in our Lord, who's here with us. Studying the faith um, in a purely academic way would be unbearable. We're we're not going to be doing that. If a mere academic were given the option of receiving a lecture on heaven or going to heaven, he would go to the lecture on heaven. He would completely miss the point, all right? The point is not to amass information. The point is to find deeper communion with our Lord. St. Thomas Aquinas, he's going to be our patron saint, and he bore this out so well in his life, right? He's going to be our guide and our model. If he was given the option of going to a lecture on heaven or going to heaven itself, he would have chosen heaven, and in fact, he did. There's this beautiful story. He's been a, he was an Italian priest who lived in the 13th century. He was a member of the Dominican order, and he's the greatest theologian in the history of the church. And one story, after he had written on the Eucharist, uh, he was in prayer with our Lord, and one of his Dominican brothers overheard a conversation with him and our Lord. And Jesus said to him, You have written well of me, Thomas. What would be your reward? Now, he could have asked for anything. He could have asked for the greatest lecture on heaven ever. But he said, and his reply is now famous, non nisi te domine, nothing but you, Lord. Thomas was motivated in his studies 
because he loved God. His heart's deepest desire was God, and he ordered his life to settle for nothing less. And that's why when he ordered his life, he gave such great attention to study. When he was returning to Paris, which is where he taught the first University of Paris, one of his brothers on the way commented on how beautiful a city it was. And Thomas agreed. And the brother said to him, would you want to be the Lord of this city? And Thomas replied, I'd rather have Chrysostom's commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. Right? So Chrysostom is one of the church fathers. Thomas, saying that he could have been you know, the Lord of the city of Paris, chose rather to have a lecture on heaven. So even though he would have wanted to go to heaven rather than have a lecture on heaven, he would have wanted to go to a lecture on heaven rather than have fame, power, money, because studying the faith is a really beautiful and privileged way of coming into communion with the Lord that loves us so much. So St. Thomas is going to be our guide and our model, and I want him um, really to intercede for us so that we might have a deep desire to grow in communion with our Lord through studying the faith. That's how I want to model it for us, and that's how I want you to be able to go forth from here, not just with information, uh, but really with a way of approaching communion with God. So let's go ahead and start with this first lecture. This first lecture is going to be on God's love. Right? We're following, in this month, we just had the Magnify, um, was it last Thursday, and Marcel spoke about the kerygma. Kerygma is just a Greek word that means the first proclamation of the faith. Right? Uh, so in this month, we're going to be following that theme for the next three weeks. Tonight's lecture is going to be on God's love. Next week, we're going to have sin and grace. And the third week, we're going to have the call to holiness. All right, so God's love is tonight. And... The kerygma, a beautiful way to express it, is simply like this. God's, God loves you. He gave his life to save you. And now he's living at your side every day to enlighten, strengthen, and free you. This is actually how Pope Francis puts it in his document, Evangelii Gaudium. This is what Pope Francis had to say about the kerygma. And you have it on that first or second slide in your phones as well, if you can't read it up here. He says, on the lips of the catechist, the first proclamation, the kerygma, must ring out over and over. Jesus Christ loves you. He gave his life to save you. And now he's living at your side every day to enlighten, strengthen, and free you. This first proclamation is called first, not because it exists at the beginning and then can be forgotten or replaced by more important things. It is first in a qualitative sense, because it's the principal proclamation, the one which you must hear again and again in different ways, the one which we must announce one way or another throughout the process of catechesis at every level and moment. Now, I would imagine that you have heard God loves you ever since you could talk, right? You're probably maybe tired of hearing that God loves you. But I'm hoping tonight to share that truth with you in a new way, in a way you haven't heard before, in a way that truly inspires you. God loves you. He gave his life to save you. And now he's living at your side every single day to enlighten, strengthen, and free you. Those three sentences are going to be the way that we break down the talk tonight. We're going to be dividing God's love in three parts. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God's love is unconditional. It's spousal, and it is personal. And that'll be the way that we break down these three sections. So let's go ahead and get started. God the Father, unconditional love. Now, when I say that God loves you unconditionally, and I focus on the Father, I'm not saying that the Son doesn't love you unconditionally, okay? I'm just saying that when we look at the Father, one of the aspects of his love for us that stands out is that his love is unconditional. And to look at this, we're going to go through the parable of the prodigal son. So uh, this, is, again, it's not just a lecture, not just something to amass information in your mind. This is something that I want you to pay attention to how the Holy Spirit might be moving in your hearts. The truth is, when we hear that God loves you, 
Generally, um, we think of the way that others have loved us, and we assume that God loves us in the same way. And, and that's not true. God loves us in only a way that God can. Um, so we might have images that friends have shown us of God's love, that parents have shown us of God's love, but only God loves us in a way that really satisfies our hearts. Because you and I deeply long for purely unconditional spousal and personal love. Um, so as we go through this, be aware of not only what's striking your mind, but what's striking your heart. Because there may be something that comes up when you realize, I thought God loved me like this. But really, He loves me like this. And unconditional love is generally one of those ways uh, that we really need to be converted to know how God loves us and not simply how maybe our parents love us, for example. So we're going to go through the parable of the prodigal son. I'm going to read it through one time first, read through the whole thing, and then we're going to break it down and go through it a little bit uh, at a time. All right. The parable of the prodigal son. A man had two sons, and the younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of your estate that should come to me. So the father divided the property between them. After a few days, the younger son collected all his belongings and set off to a distant country where he squandered his inheritance on a life of dissipation. When he had freely spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he found himself in dire need. So he hired himself out to one of the local citizens who sent him to his farm to tend the swine, and he longed to eat his fill of the pods on which the swine fed, but nobody gave him any. Coming to his senses, he thought, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food to eat, but here am I dying of hunger. I shall get up and go to my father, and I shall say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as you would treat one of your hired workers. So he got up and went back to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father caught sight of him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But his father ordered his servants, Quickly, bring the finest robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Take the fattened calf and slaughter it. Then let us celebrate with a feast, because this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Then the celebration began. Now the older son had been out in the field and on his way back as he neared the house, he heard the sound of music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what this might mean. The servant said to him, your brother has returned and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. He became angry. And when he refused to enter the house, his father came out and pleaded with him. He said to his father in reply, Look, all these years I served you, and not once did I disobey your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat to feast on with my friends. But when your son returns, who swallowed up your property with prostitutes, for him you slaughter the fattened calf. He said to him, My son, you are here with me always. Everything I have is yours. But now we must celebrate and rejoice, because your brother was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. It's a moving story. It's from the Gospel of Luke, and actually Luke is the only one who has it. Imagine if Luke hadn't followed the Lord, what we would be missing. Could you live your life without this parable, knowing how beautifully uh, God the Father loves us in an unconditional way. So let me give just a bit of context because I think maybe we've heard that many times and we're going to make just a quick judgment and say, I know what it means. Right? Um, and we can do that, especially if we heard, we've, honestly, if you go to Mass every Sunday, you've heard that many, many times in your life. Uh, but I hope that we're going to be able to appreciate it in a new way tonight by, by learning the context and by seeing just how unconditional the Father's love is. All right. 
So first, the context. The context of this parable is Jewish. Jesus is a Jewish rabbi telling this story to a Jewish audience. The family in the parable is Jewish. And this intensifies some of the meanings of the details in this story. Um, and as we go through it, at the risk of be being silly, I'm going to use Aggie culture right, to give a hint of what's going on. All right? And then I'll try to bring us back to what is really going on. Okay? So four movements in the parable. One, the younger son, his heartless treatment of the father. Two, the suffering of the younger son. Three, the unconditional love of the father. And four, begging the older son. So let's go to the first movement, Act 1. All right, so we'll read this again. Then he said, A man had two sons, and the younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of your estate that should come to me. So the father divided the property between them. After a few days, the younger son collected all his belongings and set off to a distant country where he squandered his inheritance on a life of dissipation. All right. Give me the share of your estate. That's what he says to the father. Now, this would have been viewed as an insult. Actually, that's probably an understatement because the son is asking for the right of disposal of the property. And that didn't legally occur until the father died. So we can hear him saying to the father, you're as good as dead to me. That's how valuable you are to me. You're only worth the money that you can give to me. And he says it to his face. He goes to a distant country. Right? Now this distant country that the son goes to is most likely Gentile. All right? We can see this because of the presence of a pig farm. There wouldn't have been a pig farm in uh, Israel. So the Jews, uh, they were the chosen people of God. They were blessed by God with the law and with the promised land. They got to go by the protection of God through the wilderness after having received the law from Moses to dwell in a land of milk and honey, the promised land. So when this younger son chooses to go to a distant land, he is rejecting the promise of God. He's rejecting his own family. He's bringing shame to his father even more so. And he goes about dissolute living. All right. So we saw how he rejected the land, the promised land, and now he's going to be rejecting the law by dissolute living. This was given by God to the Jewish people in order to remain in relation with him, in order to know the peace and joy of being in communion with God. But he rejects it. He rejects the land, he rejects the law, and adding insult to injury, he actually spends his father's hard-earned money on doing just that, on leaving land and leaving the life that God had given to the Israelite people. This brings further shame upon the family. Jesus is actually building up this parable. He's building it up to show the younger son's heartlessness. This dishonor that he has shown to his father has reached the maximum level, the ultimate level. There's almost nothing objectively redeeming about the younger son. So let's go to Aggie culture, all right? Imagine an Aggie son leaving College Station, spending his father's money to live like a TU Longhorn in Austin. So it's a little silly, but now let's apply that again to the Jewish context. This son of a faithful Jewish man rejects his father, rejects the faith, rejects the law, rejects the land, and goes to a Gentile country to live like a Gentile. The dishonor and the shame has reached the maximum level. So imagine how the father would feel in this story. That moves us to Act 2, all right? The suffering of the younger son. When he had freely spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he found himself in dire need. So he hired himself out to one of the local citizens who sent him to his farm to tend the swine, 
and he longed to eat his fill of the ponds on which the swine fed, but nobody gave him any. Coming to his senses, he thought, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food to eat, but here am I dying from hunger. I shall get up and go to my father, and I shall say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as you would treat one of your hired workers. All right. After the dissolute living, after the Gentile land, he now brings upon himself even greater defilement. He works with pigs. Right? He lives with pigs, and he even wants to eat with pigs. This would have caused the Jews who are listening to this parable to be absolutely disgusted and repulsed. Remember the Jewish context as we go through this. Now the son has what we can really have to describe as a quasi-change of heart. There's no indication that the son's change of heart is due to recognizing the shame and dishonor that he's brought upon his father. It's actually more likely that it points to simply the dire condition that he has brought upon himself. He sees himself in hunger and he thinks to himself, how many of my father's hired workers have enough to eat? He knows that he doesn't deserve to come home. He actually probably thinks that the father has disowned him, knowing how dishonorably he's treated him. But he decides to take advantage of his father's merciful nature, offering to accept the demotion from son to servant, right? Maybe he will treat me as a servant. Maybe I can go back like that. Even that would be a mercy because the father had every right to disown him altogether. So at this point in the parable, the Jewish context, the audience that Jesus is preaching to probably expected the parable to end with the father sending a delegation out to meet the son, informing him that he had been disowned and has no right whatsoever to be on the property. They would have thought, if you wanted to live in the land of the Gentiles and throw away everything I've given you, then go back to your people, your way of life, your land, and your religion. That would have been a completely reasonable response. But the story takes, as you know, a completely unexpected turn. So let's go to Act 3. Unconditional love of the father. So he got up and went back to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father caught sight of him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But his father ordered his servants quickly, bring the finest robe and put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, take the fattened calf and slaughter it, then let us celebrate with a feast, because this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Then the celebration began. Let's look at it word by word, verse by verse. While he was still a long way off, right? while he was still a long way off, remember this is the image that Jesus is using to describe the Father, our Heavenly Father. This detail that he was still a far way off indicates that the Father is looking. He hasn't, disown- he hasn't disinherited him. He is looking for his return. And then when he sees him, he ran. He ran to his son. The father is overjoyed. He runs to meet his son, and this happens even when he has been so deeply injured and shamed by that son. He throws his arms around him, covers him with kisses, and already in that kiss, there's an image of forgiveness. This even before he has said anything of his speech, there's already forgiveness in him covering his son with kisses. Nothing that the son has done is capable of turning his father's heart away from him. He had done everything, the maximum amount of dishonor towards the father, and the father responds with the complete same level of affection for his son. The father's love of his son is unconditional, not diminished in any way. So the son begins to utter his prepared speech, 
of repentance, but really probably negotiation, hoping to be treated as a servant. But the father doesn't allow him to finish. He doesn't allow him even to get to that part about being treated like a servant. And he starts to shower upon him gifts. So first, the robe. Right? The robe is not just meeting his temporal needs. It's not just a blanket. Right? It's a mark of high distinction. He gives him a ring. And this is very likely a signet ring, right? having the seal of the family. This indicates that not only is he going to be accepted onto the property, but he's going to be accepted as nothing less than the son that he is, having the authority of one of the family. He's been readmitted to his father's family in an unqualified way. He gives him shoes. His shoes are not just about temporal needs. It shows that he's a free man. He's welcome, if he wants to, to leave again. He's not going to chain him down like a servant into his property. He gives him shoes. Then he slaughters the fattened calf. Again, this was only for very special occasions. The feast is a further indication that the son has been readmitted to the family with no qualifications whatsoever. This is your God, my God. No matter what we have done, when we return to him, he showers us with kisses. He raises us back up to the level that we have in his eyes and can never lose in his eyes. We are his sons and daughters. Now looking more deeply at the fourth act uh, is something that we'll have to wait for another time. There's really a beautiful lesson in the way that the father talks to the older son. But for the sake of time, I need to limit our consideration to the younger son. So what does Jesus show us in this parable? God loves you, period. He doesn't love you because you have followed his commandments. He doesn't love you because you have succeeded, because you have good qualities. He loves you because you are his. You are his son. You are his daughter. And there is nothing that you can do that will change that. The Father delights in you. Even to the extreme limit of filth and defilement, the Father delights in you. This is unlike any other love that we can encounter on earth. This is the love that our hearts long to receive. This is the love of God. His love is unconditional. That's that first part of the kerygma, of that first proclamation of the faith that we can never master in the sense of just information. It's something that we have to keep learning on a deeper and deeper level for the rest of our lives. God loves you. God the Father loves you, and his love is unconditional. Now we can move to the second part of the kerygma. God loves you was the first part, He gave his life to save you. That is the second part. And to show this characteristic of God's love, we're going to be looking at the Son. We're going to be focusing on Jesus. Because after hearing that the Father loves you in an unconditional way, it's possible to conclude that, well, he has to. God has to love me. Because after all, that's what parents do. They love. Uh, He doesn't really want to. He has to. Jesus, when we look at him and we see this characteristic of spousal love, will show us that God doesn't have to love us. He wants to. It's a free love. You could even say that he likes you, right? He likes you. He doesn't just have to love you. His love is not only unconditional, it's also spousal, right? When a man and a woman fall in love, no one would characterize their love as an obligation. They don't have to love each other. They choose to. They want to. Jesus is the bridegroom, and we, the church, are his bride. So when I say spousal love, I don't mean conjugal love. Okay? Conjugal love is an image of spousal love, not the other way around. Okay? When I say spousal love, I mean a love that is free and a love that is entire, complete. 
That's how conjugal love should be. Husbands and wives give their entire selves to each other, and they do so freely. God's love for us is spousal in that way, in that it's free and entire. He doesn't have to love us. He chooses to do so. He wants to do so. And like a spouse, he's not content to love us in a partial way. He wants to give his entire self to us. He wants us to have nothing less than his whole self, and he wants us to give him our whole self. That's why the Catechism states, paragraph 1617, the entire Christian life bears the mark of spousal love, the spousal love of Christ and the church. The entire Christian life bears the mark of the spousal love between Christ and his church. Now, that's in the Catechism. Let's draw it out from Scripture. All right? For the Father, we looked at one passage, and we looked at it very closely. For looking at the Son, for looking at God's spousal love, we're going to look at several passages. All right? Again, you can follow along on the slides, um, and you have these slides, so you don't have to worry too much about writing everything down. We're going to go a little bit faster. These several passages are going to give us an overarching perspective of Jesus' love and his love specifically as spousal. So we're going to begin with St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. All right. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and handed himself over for her to sanctify her, cleansing her by the bath of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak in reference to Christ and the church. So St. Paul, the New Testament, clearly sees Jesus loving the church in a spousal way. He compares it, he compares the love of husband and wife to the love that Christ shows the church. Now, where is he getting this analogy? He gets it from the Old Testament. It's reinforced in the new, and it's brought to completion by Christ in the Eucharist. And we're going to follow that path, all right? Um, so know that John 15 has about five minutes. So uh, don't worry, you're not, you're not going to be late, all right? I'll let you, we're going to have to stand up and take a little break and come back, all right? So um, this is also going to be recorded, um, and you can follow up with the lesson afterwards uh, on, on the Aggie Catholic website. So let's begin with the giving of the law to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. Right, this is after Moses led the Israelites out of slavery, led them through the Red Sea. They arrive at Mount Sinai where God tells them he's going to appear to them on a mountain. And there he gives them the Ten Commandments and enters into a special relationship with them known as the covenant. All right, Exodus chapter 24. Moses then wrote down all the words of the Lord, and rising early in the morning, he built at the foot of the mountain an altar and twelve sacred stones for the twelve tribes of Israel. Then having sent young men of the Israelites to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice young bulls as communion offerings to the Lord, Moses took half of the blood and put it in large bowls. The other half he splashed on the altar. Taking the book of the covenant, he read it aloud to the people who answered, All that the Lord has said we will hear and do. Then he took the blood and splashed it on the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. All right. Now we're going to get into covenant in detail in the next lecture. But for now, suffice it to say that the Israelites have entered into a blood and flesh, a flesh and blood relationship with God. Right? That's what the blood is all about. Half of it was splashed on the altar, which represented God, and the other half was splashed on the people, and they are now family. When we look to the Old Testament prophets, we see that Israel saw this family relation specifically as spousal. All right? So let's look. Hosea, therefore I will allure her now. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as on the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. Right. Jeremiah, 
The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. In Ezekiel, I passed by you again and looked on you. You were at the age for love. I spread the edge of my cloak over you and covered your nakedness. I pledged myself to you and entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord God, and you became mine. Again, we're going to get more into this in the next lesson, but the spousal nature of God's relation to Israel also explains why the prophets spoke of Israel's sin as adultery. Again, Jeremiah, Surely, as a faithless wife leaves her husband, so have you been faithless to me, O house of Israel. So we just uh, left off by showing how there's prophecies, right, and Old Testament precedents for this spousal relationship between Israel and God. But not only is there an Old Testament precedent for St. Paul's words, there is an explicit prophecy that God will not give up on his bride. He's not going to give up on Israel. He's going to forgive her sins, her adultery, She's going, and he's going to establish a new marriage covenant with her. All right, move on to the next slide. Look at this beautiful verse from Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So we have this explicit prophecy of a new marriage covenant. And this again from the prophet Hosea. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be mentioned by name no more. And I will make for you a covenant on that day, and I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So this is the Old Testament background before Jesus comes onto the scene. These prophecies show that God wants to enter into a new covenant with Israel, one in which he will forgive her sins, but not only that, he wants to be one with her. He wants her to know him intimately in spiritual marriage. And that brings us to the New Testament and the Eucharist, right? Um, there's a beautiful book that goes into a whole lot of other references that I'm not going to make about John the Baptist as the friend of the bridegroom, about the first miracle of Jesus being at a wedding feast at Cana. It's by Dr. Brant Petrie, and it's called Jesus the Bridegroom. And if you're interested in this, I highly recommend it. I recommend anything by Brant Petrie, Jesus the Bridegroom. We're going to skip directly to the Eucharist, all right? Jesus institutes the Eucharist at the Last Supper. It's in the context of a Passover meal. And every Jew since the time of the Exodus from Egypt was obliged to celebrate the Passover as a memorial of their liberation from slavery in Egypt. And with his disciples, Jesus celebrates this Passover but he transforms it into something new. He inaugurates the new wedding covenant that had just been spoken of by the prophets, all right? These are the four references in the New Testament. From Matthew, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. From Mark, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. From Luke, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And St. Paul, 1 Corinthians, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All right. So our ears should certainly perk up when we hear Jesus speak of um, the new covenant and the blood of the new covenant. In light of the Old Testament, we can see that he is alluding to the covenant between God and Israel that was made at Mount Sinai, right? Remember Exodus 24. 
And Moses took the blood and threw it upon the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And he's also alluding to that new covenant that was explicitly prophesied in Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's actually the only time in the Old Testament that the words new covenant are mentioned when Jeremiah says that he's going to make a new covenant. Jesus fulfills that prophecy. He institutes the Eucharist in order to enter into a new flesh and blood relationship with us, a new covenant. And rather than use the blood of lambs, he uses his own blood. And this finally brings us back to that passage that we began with, with St. Paul, right? How much does he love us? He loves us entirely, right? Did I miss it? There it is, sorry. I just gave you a preview. That was a prophecy, Uh, (laughs) right? St. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and handed himself over for her to sanctify her, right? He used his own blood to do that, to forgive our sins, cleansing her by the bath of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So Jesus handed himself over to death for our sake to forgive our sins and betroth ourselves to himself. There is no bride in the history of the world that has been loved like the church, like you and me. There is no bride that's been loved like Jesus loves. Jesus not only talked the talk in the upper room at the Last Supper, at the Last Supper, he walked the walk at Calvary. And that brings us to how he consummated this covenant on the cross, right? After this, this is from the Gospel of John. Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A bowl full of communion, common wine, stood there. So they put a sponge full of the wine on hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished, right? In Latin, the translation is consumatum est, right? It is consummated. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus loves us as a spouse. He is the divine bridegroom who chooses freely to love us with his whole self. He holds nothing back and he will not be satisfied until we are entirely his. God loves us. He gave his life to save us. He didn't have to. He wanted to. His love for us is unconditional and it's spousal. It's free and entire. He's not content only to forgive our sins on the cross. He thirsts for us to be entirely one with him. That's what it means for him to give his life to save us, as we say in the Kerygma. Finally, we'll move to the last part. God, the Holy Spirit, personal love. That last part of the kerygma. God loves you. He gave his life to save you. And this last part, now he is living at your side every day to enlighten, strengthen, and free you. This part of the kerygma points us to the Holy Spirit. And it shows us that God's love is personal. Because just like, you know... Whenever we heard of the Father's love, and we saw that characteristic, particularly in that image of being unconditional, we could say, well, it's unconditional because he has to love me. And the love of Jesus shows us that, no, he doesn't have to. He wants to. His love is also spousal. So, too, when we look at the spousal love of Christ, we could say, but it's not personal enough. He loves everyone. He loved everyone from the cross. Does he actually love me? Does he love Greg, right? And the Holy Spirit shows us particularly that, yes, he loves me. He loves you personally. Jesus ascended into heaven not to remain on earth, not in order to distance himself from us, but actually to become closer to us. Um, Only 12 people really enjoyed that intimacy with Jesus that we read about in the Gospels, right? That's not very many. It's the 12th man. It's not like there's a whole lot more, even at a 60,000, right? Uh, 
So he ascends into heaven in order to be completely with each one of us in a personal way. He didn't want to distance himself from us. He wanted to be close to us. And he does so through the Holy Spirit. We see the personal intimacy of God's love, especially in the Holy Spirit. So this one's going to be the shortest section, but in some respects it's the most exciting because it shows us that God's unconditional spousal love is personally for you and for me. This great verse from St. Paul's letter to the Romans, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. All right. Um, when two people come together and love one another, they begin to share one spirit. One funny way in which you might see this happening on a human level is husbands and wives who have known each other, loved each other for 50 years, start to look like each other, right? Um, so St. Gregory and St. Basil show us a different way in which we can see this. They were church fathers who lived in the fourth century. Um, and I want to read a little bit of, uh, of a writing. I forget which one it's by, actually. I want to say it's, uh, this is by Basil about Gregory, all right? So they were, they were best buds, right? They were, they were friends. Um, so you have this in your slides as well. Uh, remember, we're talking about how two people, when they love one another, they share the same spirit. So this is Basil about Gregory. Such was the prelude to our friendship, the kindling of that flame that was to bind us together. In this way, we began to feel affection for each other. When in the course of time, we acknowledged our friendship and recognized that our ambition was a life of true wisdom, we became everything to each other. We shared the same lodging, the same table, the same desires, and the same goal. Our love for each other grew daily warmer and warmer. The same hope inspired us, the pursuit of learning. This is an ambition especially subject to envy, yet between us there was no envy. On the contrary, we made capital out of our rivalry. Our rivalry consisted not in seeking the first place for oneself, but in yielding it to the other, for we looked on the other's success as his own. This is the beautiful line. We seem to be two bodies with a single spirit. Though we cannot believe that Though we cannot believe those who claim that everything is contained in everything, yet you must believe that in our case, each of us was in the other and with the other. Our single object and ambition was virtue and a life of hope in the blessings that are to come. So that beautiful line, each of us was in the other and with the other. We seem to be two bodies with a single spirit. This was Gregory and Basil's experience of a natural human relationship. And a similar dynamic, but on a much more intimate scale, is at work in our relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. God loves us personally. And when we receive his love, we begin to share with him a single spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, let me try to show you what this might look like, okay? If you shared the spirit of Shakespeare, you would write poetry, if you shared the spirit of Mozart, you would write symphonies, right? Poetry, symphonies would be the fruits of your deep relationship with Mozart and Shakespeare. If you were filled with the spirit of God, you wouldn't write poetry or symphonies. You would love. That's what it means to be filled with the spirit of God. Love is the fruit of a deep relationship with God and not only love, but also peace and joy. Galatians 5, 22, not 2. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. When Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit dwell within us through the Holy Spirit, the fruit of that indwelling is peace, love, and joy. We know that the love of God is personal because we experience it on a personal level. We, you and I, individually experience the fruits of God's love. Love, joy, and peace. Love enlightens our mind, joy strengthens our heart, and peace frees us from harm. There's nothing else that someone could expect from the one that they love. Now, these fruits of love, joy, and peace have been the experience of the saints throughout the centuries. Men and women, just like you and me, far away in time and space from Jesus, have been able to receive the love of God that
that love that's unconditional, spousal, and they've received it in a personal way. So bringing it to a close, let's listen to the testimony of St. Augustine. All right. So he lived centuries after Christ, and he speaks about this moment of conversion in uh, his book, The Confessions. Late have I loved you, O beauty ever ancient, ever new. Late have I loved you. You were within me, but I was outside, and it was there that I searched for you. In my unloveliness, I plunged into the lovely things which you created. Yet you were with me, but I was not with you. Created things kept me from you. Yet if they had not been in you, they would have not been at all. You called, you shouted, you broke through my deafness, you flashed, you shone, and you dispelled my blindness. You breathed your fragrance on me. I drew in breath, and now I pant for you. I have tasted you. Now I hunger and thirst for more. You touched me, and I burned for your peace. This is the language of someone who is loved personally. He's no different from you and me. He knew the unconditional, spousal, and personal love of God in such a way that he was able to write this kind of poetry, this kind of testimony, right? God's love is unconditional, spousal, and personal. When we talk about Catholicism 101, we could summarize it simply by saying God is love. Everything else is a footnote. All of theology is simply a commentary on the fact that God is love. And God loves you. We don't enter into a relationship with Shakespeare or Mozart, right? They're dead, all right? The same is not true with God. Jesus may have died, but he rose again, and he is living. God is living. God loves you. He gave his life to save you, and now he's living every single day by your side to enlighten, strengthen, and free you. So it remains for you and for me simply to receive that love every day. Let's close in prayer. The Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Gracious God, thank you. Thank you for your love, a love that is unconditional, spousal, and personal. Send your Holy Spirit. Fill our hearts. May we bear great fruit in the way that we love others, in the peace and the joy that we know. Lord, I pray in a special way for those who have come here, that you might reward them for their generosity with simply a deeper outpouring of your grace, a deeper communion with you in love. Blessed Mother, intercede for us to receive God's love just as fully as you did as we pray together. Hail Mary. Full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen.